I am. I like to ask the question all the time, why? Why? And I want to do, I want to begin tonight, but just asking you to think about this. Why are we here? Why are we here? Why are we meeting together tonight on a Monday night? Why are we here as a church? What is the whole purpose of a church? Can I ask you a question theologically? Are you going to heaven because of the church? Absolutely not. Are you going to heaven? Are, are you, are, 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 is the church imperative for us, uh, uh, in order to, uh, to, to go to heaven? No, not at all. Why did God, why did God implement this? Why are we here? Why do you and I need a church? Well, folks, there are many passages we could go to, but I want to take you to a passage that I think is probably the number one passage in the Bible when it comes to this subject, where you have a blueprint of why we're here. And that passage is found in Ephesians chapter 4. Would you turn there with me, please, tonight? That's what will be for the first half of this message. And let me just give you my plan of attack right up front. Folks, I'm going to start tonight a two-part message. We're going to start tonight. We're going to finish it tomorrow night. Tonight, half, at least half of this message is going to be nothing more than an introduction that we're going to use as a springboard to get into what I believe God would have us to have. But here in Ephesians chapter 4, you've got a very practical chapter. When I was a youth pastor, I had my youth group memorize this entire chapter. I'll never forget getting the youth group up on the platform on a Sunday evening service, and they said in front of their parents and the rest of the church this whole chapter by memory. It's a wonderful chapter, Christian, and I would encourage every one of you to memorize it. It is so practical. And you'll notice that in chapter chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, that word therefore is a bridge. And what you're seeing by that word therefore is Paul's blueprint whenever he would do a, a letter like this. What Paul would always do, it was always his style, that when he would start a letter, he would lay down great doctrine. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, you've got great doctrine, great stuff. And then it was always Paul's fingerprint that after he laid down great doctrine, he would then get very, very practical and say, here's how you live that doctrine. I like to say it this way. Principle always leads to practice. Doctrine always leads to duty. And so when you come to chapter 4 of Ephesians, what you've got is Paul now applying to our lives that great doctrine that he has laid down in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so in chapter 4, would you look with me, please, at verse number 11. And if you've got a King James Bible here tonight, would you please, when I count to 3, would you please give me the first three words of verse number 11? Could you do that for me, please? Are you ready? Is it verse number 11? Is verse 11 what I want? Let me just say, yes, yes, verse 11. Are you ready? One, two, three. Okay, so whatever is to follow, people, if you look at me, whatever is to follow, you need to know it's a gift. It's a gift from whom? God. And he gave. So whatever is about to follow, Christian, please know that it is a God-given gift to you as a Christian. All right, so what did he give? Well, let's read on. Could you please, verse 11. And he gave some apostles. What was an apostle? And an apostle, I believe, was the, the word literally means sent one, and they were used to write scripture. They were used to kind of get doctrine all down and in and, and, and print for us. And then the next thing he says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets. We don't have apostles anymore. We don't have prophets anymore because we've got the completed word of God. But those offices were gifts. Gifts from God to you. All of us here tonight are enjoying a blessing of the ministry of apostles and prophets. 
But then you get another one, and I really like this next one. Are you with me? And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists. What in the world is an evangelist? Well, let me tell you. An evangelist is a man with about five messages and 15 suits and lots of frequent flyer miles. And we go all over the place preaching our five messages, okay? But then watch this. Watch this. Let's read on. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. That word pastors and teachers is one office. It's a two-sided coin. Every pastor is a teacher. Not every teacher is a pastor, but every pastor is a teacher. And folks, what do all four of those offices have in common? All four of those offices were used to deliver the word of God. They were all used to bring the word of God to people just like you. And so understand, friends, and I want to camp here just for a moment, that that man over there called Mike Rogers is God's gift to you. He is God's gift to you. Now, maybe times you don't like his jokes or maybe you don't like his choice of shoes because pastors never wear as good of shoes as evangelists, but it's very easy for you to look down your nose at your pastor because you know him so well, but people, you need to understand he is a gift. I know some of you might be thinking, well, if I didn't give, if I didn't tithe, there'd be nothing to pay him and he wouldn't be here. Well, wait a minute. If it weren't for God, you would have nobody to pay. You understand? There'll be nobody to pay. God, for some reason, has burdened that man's heart to put up with you. He's a gift. He's a gift. I'll never forget reading an article years ago written by James Dobson. It was an article to encourage pastors. And the title of the article is very telling. The title was, When Sheep Bite. When Sheep Bite. Folks, I hope that you are very, very giving and supportive and sensitive and prayerful for your pastor. He is a gift from God to you. I'll never forget hearing the story by J. Vernon McGee. J. Vernon McGee had a pastor friend in Texas. And this pastor in Texas pastored a good-sized church, and they had a middle-aged couple join the church one Sunday. And this couple had a wife. That was one of those women that we've all met them that was very domineering and tried to control everything she was involved in. And she immediately got involved in that church and tried to control the pastor. There are lots of women who try to do that. But the pastor would have none of it. And finally, one day, she got so frustrated with her pastor, she said, Pastor, if you were my husband, I would poison you. The pastor very quickly said, Ma'am, if you were my wife, I'd take it. I hope you pray for your pastor all the time. He's a gift. But people, why in the world do you need him? Why did God do that? Why did he give you a gift? Evangelist. Pastor. Why? Why? The next verse tells you. And oh, what a telling, revealing verse. Verse number 12. Are you with me? Verse number 12. For, here's why, for the perfecting of the, that's you, saints. That word perfecting means to build, to make bigger and bigger, to make more and more complete. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I need a pastor. There's something about having a pastor in your life that God has commanded to be part of your spiritual diet. But I've met all kinds of people who say, I don't need the church. I don't need it. And ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you about those people. They 
are sick. There's something wrong with them. I'll never forget people years ago, as I told you last night, I'm a sports fan. And some of you may remember that there was a great college basketball player who played for UCLA, and he was never defeated his entire four years that he went to UCLA. His name was Bill Walton. He was seven feet, one inch tall. He was a phenomenal player, played under John Wooden. And when Bill Walton graduated from UCLA, he was the number one draft choice in the National Basketball Association. The worst team in the NBA always has the first choice of the next season. And they chose Bill Walton. He went and played for the Portland Trailblazers. Now, anybody who graduates from UCLA is probably pretty messed up in the head. And Bill Walton went up there and immediately became a vegetarian. Why anybody would do that, I don't know. I like what PETA stands for. PETA stands for people eating tasty animals. I don't know why, I don't know why, why people become vegetarians. I, uh, I, I, you know, I like that bumper sticker says, if we're not supposed to eat animals, why did God make them so tasty? You know, I, I, but anyway, Bill Walton went up there. I digress. Bill Walton went up there and said, I am a vegetarian. And immediately people, he started getting injured. He was always injured. Here they were paying millions of dollars to the number one draft, and he was their he was their chosen golden boy. And he kept getting injured. Finally, the team doctors came to him and said, "Bill, start eating meat. You need that protein. And and if you don't, we're going to kick you out of here." So Bill Walton started eating meat again. And you know what happened? He stopped getting injured. Folks, I wonder how many Bill Waltons I might be looking at, who way down in your heart you're thinking. I don't need him. I don't need this. I'll come when I feel like it. You're sick. You're injured spiritually. God has made you a Christian people with a necessary ingredient in your diet called church and a pastor. They are a gift to you from God. And so understand that your pastor is in your life to help you be perfected, to grow. In fact, he kind of continues that thought. Let's read on, okay? Let's read on. For the perfecting of the saints, I'm in verse 12. For the work, oh, watch this, saints. For the work of the ministry. Let me say something that's going to shock you. Your pastor's not called to the ministry. You are. You are. He, you know what he's called to do? He's called to do two things. Pray and study the word of God. Pray and study the word of God. And the more you make him do that, the better off you're going to be as a church. He is to pray and study the word of God. It's interesting that when somebody in your church gets injured, they go to the hospital. One of the first questions that people will often ask is, well, did your pastor call on you? Wait a minute, time out. Did you call on him? That's really your job. Now, he's going to do it because he has a shepherd's heart and he wants to, and he's concerned. But folks, the ministry, calling on somebody like that is really your job as a church. God wants you to do that. You're the ones. You're the ones called to the ministry. Not him. You. That's what God just said. Now, let's read on. Look what happens, folks. If you get a hold of that, look what happens. Verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Folks. What Paul has just told you is that when you as a church get into the ministry, the better, the more wholesome this church is going to be. If you sit back and say, well, I'm going to let the pastor do everything, you're not a healthy church. 
But the more you get ministry-minded as a congregational member, the healthier this church is going to be. And when that happens, folks, look at verse 13. Here's what's going to happen. Verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. Would you look at me, please? God loves it, Faith Baptist. God loves it when you guys get along. He loves it. God wants all of you to be a, he wants you to be a unified, happy family, edifying each other, growing, doing the ministry. Am I describing this church? Well, I sure hope so. What would your nursery be like if it was full of two-year-olds and no adult supervision? You mamas really laugh at that one, don't you? What would a nursery be like full of two-year-olds and no adults? Folks, I think all of you would agree that if a two-year-old knew how to, and if the two-year-old had the ability, they would literally kill each other. They do not get along. It is my toy. You back off, jerk. That is always the mentality of a two-year-old. Am I right? That's always the mentality of a two-year-old. They're very childish. They're very, very self-centered. You expect that from a child, don't you? You show me a church, you show me a youth group where there's all kinds of bickering and gossiping and people don't get along, I'll show you a bunch of two-year-olds spiritually. You need to grow up. You need to grow. And friends, God loves it when you as a church get along. You grow. You're in the ministry. You're looking out for each other. You're very much not self-focused. That's what adults are like. They grow out of that self-centeredness and they start thinking of others. How badly does God want this church to be the kind of church where you're looking out for each other, you're very concerned for each other, you get into each other's lives? That's what God wants. Now, watch this, would you? When that happens, let's read on. I'm in the middle of verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, doctrines in there. That's why your pastor's preaching. The Bible always makes you grow. Unto a perfect or complete man, when unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, folks, what in the world does that mean? Be Christ-like. Teenagers, be Christ-like. Ladies, be Christ-like. Men, be Christ-like. What in the world does that mean? Well, let me help you. You know what Paul said? Paul said, and we talked, we talked about this last night. Paul said, be like me. Mark them. Mark me. Be like me. Why would Paul do that? Because Paul knew he was mature. He was still a sinner. He recognizes that. But as far as humanity is concerned, Paul was just about as Christ-like as you could possibly be. When you guys are Pauline-like, it's going to cause a unity. And that is exactly what God wants from every one of you, for you to become ministry-minded and you grow and you become more and more growing to the stature and the measure of Jesus Christ or to be like Paul. Boy, wouldn't that be fun to have churches that have believers like the Apostle Paul? That would be exciting. But let me read on, please. Okay, watch this. I'm going somewhere with this. I've got a goal. Okay, now watch this in verse 14. That we henceforth, in other words, referring to all that we've just been saying, that we no longer, that we henceforth be no more children 
But we were all born again as children, weren't we? You were childlike when you got saved. But God doesn't want you to stay there, that we henceforth be no more children. And what are children like? Being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Folks, children are very deceivable. When somebody gets saved, they're very easily misled. And so God says, oh, grow. You need to grow. How do you grow? By getting into doctrine, by obeying, by, by following your pastors. He's, he's preaching the word of God and challenging you to, to get into the ministry. It grows you, my friend. And that's what God wants. He wants you to grow, not to be childlike anymore. I would imagine that many of you could give me names of people that you know that used to sit in here and they got misled by the world, by some doctrine. Nungesses and I were having dinner together tonight, and we were talking about a particular gentleman that used to be on family radio out of Oakland who taught the doctrine that, that uh, we're in the millennium right now. How stupid. We're in the millennium right now, and I have a friend. I have a friend. In fact, he's a, he's a diamond exchanger in Manhattan. I bought my wife's 25th wedding anniversary gift. I got her a new set of, of, uh, of wedding rings, man. I used him. He's a, he's a very good friend of mine. But he listened to that man. Harold Camping was his name. He's with the Lord now, I hope. But Harold was a misleader, and that friend of mine was not very deep in Christianity. And he believed Harold, and he stopped attending that church he was at. Bill Durking was the pastor at the time. And he stopped attending that church and is now just living for himself. We could all tell stories like that. New converts are very misled. And friends, what's so interesting about that is that you can be saved for 10, 20 years and still be a new convert. You never grew. You're kind of freaky. But that's what happens to children. They're easily misled. They're easily misled. But when that happens, the Bible says, watch out. And so, so friends, how do you fight that? Well, and here's my goal. Here's where I'm going, people. Verse number, verse number 15. Are you with me? Everybody alive? Watch this. Verse 15. But speaking the truth, that would be the Bible. That would be doctrine. That's what your pastor does. But speaking the truth in love may Next two words out loud, congregation, say it. Grow up. Grow up. If I were to title this message tonight and tomorrow night, and I don't get into titles, but I will right now. If I were to title this message, it would be this. Oh, grow up. Grow up. Christians, grow up. I wish I had a dollar for every time my parents had to tell me that when I was a teenager. Michael, would you grow up? I wish I had $5 for every time my wife has told me that. Grow up. Grow up. But ladies and gentlemen, back at you. Grow up. Grow up. Don't be satisfied with how tall you are right now. It's everybody's, it's every healthy Christian's desire. I want to get bigger. I want to grow. And what I would like to do, that was all by way of introduction, people. And what I want to do is I want to take you to my main text. I'm about to take you to a passage, people, in the Bible where there's no other passage in the entire Bible like it. And what it is, it's a picture about growth. And it's a picture that if you brought your sense of humor to church tonight, and that's legal, if you brought your sense of humor to church, it may make you chuckle. It might at least make you smile if you're a Christian. It's kind of a humorous picture, but it's a graphic picture, and it's a picture that all of you are going to perfectly understand. Let me show it to you. Could I please? First John. First John. Would you get there with me? First John. 
chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. And let me show you this graphic, graphic picture. 1 John chapter 2. Of course, John's called the apostle of love, but it's interesting. He gets very, very attackish and pointed in his gospels and in his, his writings. 1 John chapter 2. And look with me, if you would, please, at verse number 12. Now, congregation, you be patient with me. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a couple words. I'm going to visit with you. Read a couple more words, visit with you. You be patient, okay? And just hang with me, all right? You with me? First John chapter 2. And let's start reading in verse number 12. Okay, you with me? Everybody, if you're alive, play, say amen. All right, good. Watch this now. Verse 12. I write. Would you look at me? You are going to read in the next three verses that phrase six times. I write, I write, I write, I have written, I have written, I have written. You're going to read that six times. Somebody writes something. What are they assuming? Exactly, that you're going to read. Men, would you look at me? I read a statistic years ago that said 90% of all the reading done in a local church is done by the women. Men, you got to be readers. God wants you to read his word. Isn't it interesting that God preserved his word in a book and not a DVD? God wants his people reading. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing the word of God. God wants his people reading. But I've had men tell me, well, Brother Mike, I don't read so well. I didn't finish my education past the eighth grade. I'm not very good at that. Oh, give me a break. Gentlemen, reading is just like changing the oil on your car. The more you do it, the better you get. Just do it. It takes, and I'm going to use that cuss word that I used last night, it takes discipline. Discipline. You make yourself do it. You know why? Because God wants you to read. John's assuming that God's people will read. You need to read. Oh, and by the way, if it's kind of hard for you and you're not kind of, you're not very good at it, you can go to the internet and you can download for free. You can download the Bible. I have the Bible on this little gadget right here that will read to me while I'm driving. I, it's amazing, isn't it, Roger? I mean, wow. So you're without excuse, buddy. So be quiet. Yeah, you, yeah. Some of you bring your cell phone instead of your Bible to church, like she does, and and that not a thing wrong with that. I'm not preaching against it, yeah, but uh, but yeah. For, for, my whole point is this: Are you with me? God wants His people reading. So John's assuming you're going to read. Now, what did he write? Well, let's read on. Back to verse twelve. Everybody with me? I write unto you, little children. Now you're going to see that term, little children, again in the next verse, but they are not the same word. Let me explain. The word little children here in people in verse number 12 is a word that describes a phenomena that all of you are familiar with. People will often ask me, and George, you'll get a kick out of this. People will often ask me, are you like your dad or your mom? I get that all the time. Let me tell you about my dad. The nun guessers here know him well. But my dad is very even keel, very friendly, not very emotional, very steady Eddie, 
just a mild-mannered, nice personality, warm. Does that describe me? No. I'm a, I'm a moron. I am nothing like my dad. Let me tell you about my mom. My mom, and I don't think you... Did you ever meet my mom? My mom was psycho. She, when I was growing up, she wanted to fight my fights for me. She was a go-getter, very emotional, very off the wall. Her goal in life was to own a Corvette. I mean, she was just, she, she knew the Lord. She's definitely a Christian. But she was just, I mean, really in your face. So who am I like? Be quiet. So if you were to have walked up to my mom, and she's with the Lord now, but if you were to walk up to her and you were to have said to her, Billy, that was her name. She was supposed to be a boy and she acted like it. But if you were to say, Billy, do you have any children? She would look you right in the eye, Dan, and she would say, well, of course I do. I've got three. One's an evangelist, and I have no idea where he is tonight. My second oldest is in Los Angeles at the time, and my third one passed away when he was 17. Folks, do I look like a child? No, I look like an old man. But do you understand? I am my mom's child. That word children can also mean offspring. That's what it means, Christians, here in verse 12. That's what that little children means. It just means God's offspring. Isn't that interesting? When you got saved, you became a child of God. Now, most of you are old people, but you are children. You belong to God. You're his child. Could I get an amen? You are his child. So understand, he's talking about offspring in verse 12, okay? Now, he's not going to use that word in verse 13, but we'll get there in a minute. Let's read verse 12. You with me? Back to verse 12. I write unto you God's offspring. You mind if I say that? Because you, because your sins, and people, what you're about to read is probably one of the most beautiful phrases that describes a Christian in all the Bible. What makes us a Christian? Because, verse 12, Little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. That's what a Christian is, people. We can sit here tonight, and this gives me goose pimples. We can sit here tonight and just enjoy the fact that my sins are forgiven. I'm no better than anybody here. Yeah, I'm a jerk. But I am forgiven, and I know that for sure because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what separates you from the Catholic Church, from the Mormons, from the Jehovah's Witnesses, from the Muslims, you name it, from the Hinduists. That's what separates us from every other belief system in the world. We know, we know our sins are forgiven. And nobody's going to heaven that doesn't believe that. That's what makes a Christian. And so you are God's offspring. And so understand that, my friend. You're God's offspring. If you know that your sins are forgiven, you've asked Jesus Christ to forgive you, you've repented, you've asked him to save you from the penalty of your sin, that's what makes you God's offspring. That's what he's talking about in verse 12. But now watch this. Let's go to verse 13. Watch this. Verse 13. I write. There it is a second time. I write unto you fathers. Hmm, interesting. Because ye have known him that is from the beginning. We'll talk a lot about that tomorrow night. I write, or I have written unto you, young men. Hmm, there's another one. Because ye have overcome the wicked one. 
I write unto you, and there it is again a second time, little children, because ye have known the Father. The term little children there, folks, is talking about a small child. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. Verse 14, I have written unto you fathers, the exact same phrase from verse 13, he repeats it. I have written unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because ye are strong. We get a little more information in verse 14 about young men. I have written unto you young men because ye are strong. And the word of God abideth in you. That's what made them strong. The word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Would you look at me, please? What God is doing, people, and you need to visualize this in your mind, what God has given you is three levels of Christianity. You have little children, you have young men, and you have fathers. And every one of you that are saved here tonight must, you're commanded by God to identify with one of those three levels. You're in there somewhere. Every one of you, you're in there somewhere. Now, let me tell you about this. I'll call it a graph, okay? Let me tell you about this graph. Whether you're a child, a young man, or a father has nothing to do with how much God loves you. God loves little children, Christian, just as much as he loves father Christians. But the father Christians, and I'll give you a little advertisement here for tomorrow night, father Christians are way more useful than children Christians. And that'll make sense to you tomorrow night. But you must identify as a young child Christian, a young man Christian, or a father type Christian. Now, let me tell you something else about this graph. It has nothing, and this is going to shock you, it has nothing to do with chronological age. I have met retirees who are very childlike in their Christianity. I have met young men who are college age that are very fatherlike in their Christianity. It has nothing to do with how long you've been saved. It has nothing to do with how old you are. It has nothing to do with your education. It has everything to do with what you know about the Word of God and not just know it, but live it. That's where the growth comes. But every one of you, I repeat, every one of you tonight are forced. I don't care who you are. You are forced to identify with one of those levels. And let me tell you something else about this graph. It has nothing to do with what you're doing in the church. I have met pastors who are kind of young menish, childlike in their faith. And I've met people that are just prayer warriors, old ladies who've lost their husbands, who are very fatherlike in their faith. It has nothing to do with the office that you hold in church. Understand that? What it has to do with is what and how you are living the Word of God. Now, let's talk about children. Let's talk about the first level. And we'll kind of get through this level tonight and, and then go home. We're talking about children. And let me tell you about children Christians, folks. Every one of us that are saved here tonight, when we got saved, no matter how old you were, when you got saved, you got saved as a child. Not as a chronological age child, but in your faith, you became a brand new, born again baby in Christ. That's where we all started. Nobody ever started getting saved, and they were immediately father-like. Doesn't happen. Just like in real life, just like in, in, in physical life. Nobody's ever born as, a, as an adult. 
We all started, when we got saved, we all started out as a very childlike, babyish Christian. Well, folks, can I tell you about childlike Christians? If you have a small child in your home, and I know many of you have had that in the past, but if you're going to be the right kind of parent or the right kind of keeper of a child, you are very, very careful about what those little ears hear. If you're the right kind of parent, you're very careful about what their little ears hear. You're very careful about what their little eyes see. You're very careful about where those little feet go. When they come to a busy street, you're, you're very, very mindful because they have not learned to be sophisticated like you. They don't know to look both ways and they don't understand the danger that's around them. So they need you. They need you. You may even say to your child, when we're at the mall, don't talk to strangers. Or the, the, the buzz term anymore is stranger danger. Stranger danger. Why, people? Why are we like that with little children? Because they are very easily misled. They're very easily swayed. They don't have discernment. You understand that? And they're not, they're not, they're not weird. You would expect that of a child. There's no discernment. They need to be protected. Ladies and gentlemen, if this is the right kind of church, if this is the right kind, if you're the right kind of believer, there ought to be an air of protection here. When somebody who's young in the Lord or they're immature in the Lord and, 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 you're, and, and they miss church, if you're the right kind of Christian, you're immediately on your phone. You're immediately texting, hey, we missed you today. You okay? You're looking out for your young converts. You're, you're looking out for your, your immature type believers. You know why? They need that. They're very easily misled. And so, my friend, if this is the right kind of church, you're very, very protective. Very protective. But let me tell you what a new convert or an immature Christian is like. Just like a child, they are very, very self-centered. It's all about me. When your three-year-old is standing, maybe it's a grandchild, maybe it's your child, and they're standing in front of the Christmas tree and they see all their gifts. Let me tell you what they're not thinking. They're not looking at that big pile of gifts thinking, ooh, I wonder which one's for my sister. They are not thinking that. They are hoping that all of it is for them. And we kind of get humor about that. It's kind of fun to see Christmas through the child's eyes because they're so, wow. But it's all about them. You understand that, don't you? A child is all about me. What's in it for me? And ladies and gentlemen, that is such a great picture of a new convert or an immature Christian. When they come to church, their focus is, hey, were people friendly to me? Did the pastor say hello to me? And when they sing a solo, or they bring a potluck dish. If you're the right kind of church, you're all over it. Oh, that was a wonderful solo. Thank you. Oh, what a wonderful dish. It's so good. To, you're so very supportive and protective. But folks, that takes a mature Christian because most of Christians in America, well, I'm going to go to a church that meets my needs. What's in it for me? Does a, does a pastor entertain me? It's all about me. 
Isn't that kind of fun, people? Seriously, though. Isn't it kind of fun to be around children? Their favorite song. Jesus loves. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about me. And we don't mind that. You would expect that from a new convert. Those of you who've been saved for 20 or 30 years and you're still like that, you're kind of a freak. And you're kind of not what God expected. They're all about me. By the way, time out. Time out, church. I think you'll enjoy this. Are you aware of where Jesus loves me came from? Let me tell you where it came from. There was a woman who lived with her dad. She never married. And she lived with her dad on an island in the middle of the Hudson River, not far from New York City, right off the shore of West Point Military Academy. This woman, this young woman, loved the Lord Jesus. And she got burdened for all these 18-year-old cadets that she would see training themselves to go off to fight, to be at war. And she was given permission by the leadership of West Point to come across the river on her boat every Sunday morning and conduct a Sunday school for these 18-year-old cadets. They loved her. She brought cookies. She was often given permission to have them come back to her house, and she gave them a home-cooked meal. And can you remember what you were like at 18? You went off to college. Oh, that was so such a trade to get a home-cooked meal, not have to eat college food. She was getting, and they loved her. They absolutely loved her. And she got burdened. She thought, I would love to come up with some kind of song that these young men could sing that would remind them that Jesus loves them. And she penned, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me was never intended, people, for children. It was intended for young adults, military young adults. Isn't that fascinating? Let me close with this, with this illustration. I'm not done preaching. Don't, don't get excited. She was the only, she is the only woman buried in the cemetery at West Point. Isn't that interesting? But folks, back to my point. Children are very self-centered. Immature Christians, they're all about, hey, was that preacher entertaining? I don't know if I like his style. I'm trying something. Me, 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 me. And isn't it fun, people? Isn't it fun to see a man who did nothing but use the name of the Lord in vain, meet the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden, they're all about, he loves me. <laughs> he loves me. And they love to sing, oh, it's about me. I got saved. I got saved. I got saved. My friend, I hope you never lose the wonder of being saved. But that's where it begins, people. That's not the end of the game. That's just the kickoff. God wants you to grow. And so he takes us to the next level. That next level is called young man. And ladies and gentlemen, I hope I say this a thousand times in the next 48 hours. The direction the Bible always takes you is Father Christianity. The Bible always takes you in that direction. It never takes you to immaturity. It always takes you to maturity. The Bible, every time you read it and every time you have the character to obey it, it's always endeavoring to take you in the direction of becoming more and more mature, big, grown up. And the next level, when somebody starts to grow, they will always grow through what is called a young man stage. 
John is a Jew. You know what a young man was to a Jew? It was any young man who was already celebrated as bar mitzvah. He officially became a man. You know when that happened? Twelve. Twelve years old. Son, how old are you? Come here for a second, would you please? Come here. By the way, I love your hair. Could I have some? I would like that. Appreciate you doing this. What's your name? Lucas. Nice name. I got a trumpet student by the name of Lucas. You're, you're fascinated, I can tell. Um, ladies and gentlemen, would you please say hello to Lucas? Lucas is 12. In John's mind as a Jew, young man, there's a young man. In Jewish society, Lucas already has his vocation picked out for him. It's going to be probably what his dad does. What does his dad do? Welding. Congratulations. And this will really get Lucas. He's already got his wife picked out for him. They haven't married yet because he needs to establish himself with a job. But she's already been bought. Does that excite you? You don't have to answer that, Lucas. Young man, now friends, let me tell you why I have Lucas here. I don't know how well you know this age. I'm around him a lot. And if Lucas is normal, and he kind of looks like he is, if Lucas is normal, Lucas is all about winning. Everything's competition. He can pick a bigger winner. He can run faster. He can slurp his jello faster. He's all about, and he'll even think, say things like, Dibs, I got the front seat. I got the window seat. And he'll run, and he's always wanting to race. Are you kind of like that, Lucas? Yeah. Yeah, okay, thanks. Appreciate that. Thanks. It's all about winning. All about winning. Thank you, Lucas. You can sit down. Thank you, Lucas. Your dad's going to buy you a cookie on the way home for doing that. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, a young man, and here's John's point. Hear me carefully. A young man is all about winning. That's what the word overcome means. You had it twice. Let's read it again, could we? Look at verse 13. Look what he said about young men. He says, verse 13, I write unto you fathers because you have known him this from the beginning. I write unto you young men because ye have overcome the wicked one. Jump down to the latter part of verse 14. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. You know what the word overcome means? Pastor, I should have checked this with you before announcing this. I hope it's okay. But I'm going to give you permission as your evangelist this week. I'd like everybody tomorrow night that comes to wear a swoosh or an article of clothing with the swoosh on it or make a swoosh. Do you know what the swish is? Nike. The Nike swish. You know what I'm talking about? I'm in Sacramento. You guys are in 21st century, right? The, 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 the Nike swish. Are you aware, people, that the word Nike is Greek? It's actually pronounced, we've Americanized it, it's actually pronounced Nike. But in America, we, we, we call it Nike. Just like we say Adidas. But if you go to Germany, where they're made, it's pronounced Adidas. But the word for overcome, old Bible students, you're going to love this. The word for overcome is Nike. Nike. You have it twice. And you know what it means? Victory! Win! Overcome! 
Ladies and gentlemen, there's nobody in the world who has more of a right to wear the swoosh than you Christians. You're all about winning. You're all about winning. So I give you permission tomorrow night to wear an article of clothing, shoes, sweater, jacket, whatever that's got the swoosh on it. Ladies, if you don't have something like that, you have my permission to take your husband's credit card tomorrow and go to the store and buy yourself a swish. Or you can go to the Internet and, and download it and print out the swish and pin it to your lapel, whatever. But I would love it. I would love it if you just get into this and have everybody wearing a swish tomorrow night. That would be so cool. And let me tell you what you're doing. You know how you're encouraged to say amen? By wearing the swish tomorrow night, you're saying amen. You're all about victory. Now, having said that, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow night because I'm out of time, but what are we all about victory with? Overcoming the wicked one. What does the wicked one want to do? He wants you. He can't rob you of your salvation. He can't rob you of heaven. He can't take anything from you, but he can mess you up by getting you to sin. So as you grow, you're going to get, and you'll hear more about this tomorrow night, as you grow, you're going to get more and more touchy about your sin. Let's have a great service tomorrow night, could we? Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father.